Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today we are joined by Dr. Donald Alsendor of Meharry Medical College. Dr. Alsendor is an expert on virology and has done extensive work with preventing spread of viruses through vaccinations. Today our focus is on vaccines in communities of color, specifically the COVID-19 vaccines. We will discuss the differences between the three major vaccines available, vaccine hesitancy, and how to access these vaccines. Dr. Rolanda Lister leads this discussion. Let's jump right in. Good morning uh, to all of our TIPQC listeners. It's a pleasure to be with Dr. Alcindor today, who has done a lot of work with vaccine for COVID-19 and focused in communities of color. So I'm going to just ask him to introduce himself and let us know how he got into the work that he is currently in now. Dr. Alcindor? Yes, good morning. So I just want to say that I'm an associate professor at Meharry Medical College. I'm in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Physiology. I'm also an associate adjunct professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in the Department of Infectious Diseases. And my interest in vaccines comes out of my work with the vaccine team here at Meharry. And so when COVID-19 broke, Meharry jumped out in front with developing vaccine centers around the uh, the, uh, Nashville area. And the idea is that Novavax partnered with Meharry as part of the Project Warp Speed effort to develop vaccines quickly to combat the COVID-19 virus. And so my job was to serve as a dissemination specialist in terms of interacting with communities that we would want to participate in vaccine trials. And the idea is that I represented boots on the ground to really go out into the neighborhoods, particularly barbershops, salons, and other places like small businesses to talk to the individuals there about giving them information they needed, developing a level of knowledge about the vaccine so that they could make an informed choice about getting this COVID-19 vaccine, or for that matter, participating in our vaccine trials. And so that's very important. So I started out at an HBCU in Louisiana, Southern University in Baton Rouge. Of course, I went to the closest, bigger college there, Louisiana State University, get a master's degree in microbiology. And there I met a person who was teaching me about virology as part of a 199 a senior course. And the idea was is that this was my first effort to work with viruses. And at that time, I was working with equine infectious anemia virus, which is a bad virus that infects horses 
that give them a level of fatigue that they simply cannot participate in any activity. And so at that time, I saw a surgery on a horse, and I saw a horse, baby horse being born for the first time. And the idea is that this baby horse was used for research, and I don't want to go into it further than that. But So I got my opportunity to participate in cell culture. And from cell culture, I went to virology. And so from virology, I graduated. I had a lot of respect for the person that was teaching me those things. And he told me about a university that he attended called the University of California, Davis. And so I was very excited about it just because of the way he carried himself, the way he could answer just about every question you can come up with. He had very plain, straightforward answers to any kind of scientific question you would ask him about. And, and what we would call his scientific range was extensive. And so I was very impressed. And after finding out where he went to college, I said to myself, maybe I would like to go to that college too. And so he wrote me a very good letter of recommendation. I got into UC Davis. Everything was paid for. I had a very good time. And there I started to look at HIV virology. And of course, the opportunistic infections in HIV patients was cytomegalovirus. And that was my first effort to start looking at something that I could work on just for me in the laboratory. So as an opportunistic infection in the HIV patients, CMV was a problem. But I wanted to take it to another level and start looking at CMV congenital disease in women that give birth to children that are infected in utero. And so this is very important to me. And so there I left UC Davis. And the thing about UC Davis is that when you're there, there is a tremendous rally around you and how you're going to succeed. And that was very important. And leaving UC Davis, I had opportunities that I never thought I would coming out of a small HBCU in Louisiana. And so I had opportunities to go to Stanford, places like uh, La Jolla, California, the Scripps Clinic, and Johns Hopkins. And so I chose Johns Hopkins because Gary Hayward was there. He, he was at the top of the CMV group in terms of research. And my family was very excited for an opportunity like that. And to go through all of that and not pay 10 cents to go to school, that was just fine with me. I had the best time, and I knew I was in a different place because there were famous people coming to give us lectures. You know what I'm saying? And so I knew I was in a different place than where I started, and and it was my appreciation for all of that. And after I would leave there, I knew I would have opportunities as well. And so I stayed there hoping to make a place for myself there. The ceiling is very high at Johns Hopkins. <laughs> There were very few people like me that were in faculty positions, and that was clear. I got a call while waiting in the cancer building one day, and the call was from James Hildred, who was a Hopkins professor at the time. And he informed me that he was leaving to go to a college, a medical college in Nashville, Tennessee, called Meharry Medical College. So, the idea is that I was introduced to a name that I had never heard before, pretty much. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know where Meharry was. I had never heard of Meharry. And that's when I started to look on the computer and find out things. But one thing that was certain is that James Hilder was going there. 
He had seen my plight. He had seen what I'd been through. He would not bring us to a situation that would be problematic for us in terms of our, our uh, success. And so I felt that I would basically go with his blessing in terms of him making a very good choice for us. And so the idea is that I was a member of a Hopkins team that came to Meharry. So we had a new building, new offices, new facilities. They had built everything new inside of an older hospital. And so to leave Johns Hopkins, there was just a few things that would make me do that. That is to have my own lab and to, to run my own research the way I wanted to. And that was enough. And then the last thing that made it clear for me is the birth of a baby girl in November of 2004. And uh, I looked at her the day she was born and she told me I had to go. <laughs> she did. Okay. Okay. That was just a beautiful walk through your uh, journey of scientific discovery. And, and it's definitely near and dear to my heart for our listeners who do not know what HBCUs are. Those stand for historically black colleges and universities. And, and while the percentage of black professionals in the United States, particularly medical professionals, lawyers, doctors, that overall number uh, may be low. The vast majority of those professionals are products of historically black colleges and universities. So the contributions of places like Meharry and Howard University and Morehouse, so many of our HBCUs that were rooted in providing education to Blacks after the Reconstruction era still stand to this day. And, and really have infused the United States with a, a plethora of high quality talent from our communities and are by and large become trusted members of our communities and are dedicated. So thank you so much for just detailing your journey and how the origins of uh, being connected with an HBCU really, really laid the platform for your immense success. So I just wanted to to highlight that. Thank you so much for that. So I guess in the vein of just being a product of those communities and then coming, it's almost like your journey has taken you around full circle where now you are, your research and your scientific discoveries have have emphasized reaching out to communities of color. And I guess my question for you is, what about communities of colors do you feel has impacted COVID-19 and why it has had such a uh, disproportionately negative impact on communities of color? Yeah, so it's a long-standing experience that communities of color have had with the medical community, with science in general meaning that you have communities of color that experience scientific teams coming into that community and saying, we're going to do this experiment and that experiment. And then when it's all over, they write papers, they, they write grants, and then they leave with no sustaining opportunities for that community. And, and again, the, the information is not disseminated to that community in a way that they understand in a culturally competent way. And I think that is problematic. And of mm -hmm. course, 
there are other factors that contribute to communities of color being more impacted by COVID-19 just by the jobs they have. The social determinants of health for communities of color was put under a tremendous amount of stress before COVID-19. And so COVID-19 came in and put the squeeze on social determinants of health for these communities, and they were even more devastated. And now you have a situation where you had a virus that was easily transmitted from one person to the next. They had less opportunity for access to testing, access to PPE, and then at that time, there were no vaccines at that time. And so what we've seen is that they were working in jobs that forced them to be interfaced with people at close distances, working in grocery stores, slaughterhouses, working in public transit. These are all jobs where you have to interact and be exposed to a lot of people all the time. And the idea is that you oftentimes are living in neighborhoods that are somewhat overcrowded. You're living in multi-generational households where you have crowded conditions, where one individual will have to leave and go out and work in a crowded community, maybe contracted COVID-19 and bringing it back to the family that's living in those close settings. And so all of those things, and of course, those underlying clinical conditions that put them at a greater risk once they get COVID-19, that includes hypertension, diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, obesity, and other kinds of underlying comorbidities. And of course, the most severe uh, symptoms of COVID-19 for those individuals. So in terms of combating COVID-19 in communities of colors, I think one of the biggest weapons in our arsenal has been the recent development and approval of the vaccines. And can you just describe what vaccines are out there? How do they work? And why is it important to even receive a vaccine for COVID? Yes. And so I think when you think about vaccines, you want to think about those that have been given some level of approval because there's so many out there that's not on the radar of the media now because they're not ready for emergency use authorization. And so we think about those three vaccines that are approved in the United States for EUA authorization. That's going to be Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson. And they were approved in that order. And the idea is that this goes back to a very important mission of Project Warp Speed. And so Project Warp Speed's mission was to design, develop 300 million doses of a safe and effective vaccine that we would be delivered on January 1st, 2021. And so it turns out that uh, a, a couple of companies did that. And so Pfizer and Moderna were able to achieve developing a safe and effective vaccine. They didn't have 300 million doses, but they, in time they would have that. So the vaccine contracts came out from all of those countries that had money. And then you had to wait until February before Johnson & Johnson's vaccines became available for emergency youth authorization. There are a number of other vaccines that are in the pipeline that will simply help because they will bring in a different uh, manufacturer, more doses, and the idea is that some of these doses will have to go to other communities outside the United States. That's the only way this can happen. You can't depend strictly on the World Health Organization. So in terms of developing a vaccine, traditionally, you're talking about 10 to 12 years to develop a vaccine. 
in its traditional manner. However, we had some advantages with COVID-19. So the idea is that depending on the kind of vaccine you're going to make, you would be helped by the information that's already known. Traditionally, you have to go after a candidate antigen. Now, candidate antigen basically is what particular protein on the virus that would confer what we call neutralization of that virus, or that is to block that virus from entering a cell. Hence, closing the door on a virus, okay? And so the idea is that to look for that candidate antigen, that takes time. But because these two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, would be mRNA vaccines, now all you have to do is look at the viral sequence that was sent from China way back in January. They were able to identify a very important protein that actually executes the binding and entry into the cell to initiate infection. And that was the glycoprotein, spike glycoprotein. Exactly. And so the idea then was that it was very simple for Pfizer and Moderna to basically make an mRNA molecule that encodes the spike protein. And again, this is from the original Wuhan strain of virus. Okay. And the idea now is that you had everything you need to make this spike protein in cell if you inject it into a person. Now, Pfizer and Moderna, in the case, in his case, Moderna had the most experience in developing the mRNA vaccines. And what they did to protect the mRNA, they put it into a, a lipid wrapping, so to speak, okay? What we call a lipid nanoparticle. And that would protect the vaccine just enough for it to be released, make the protein, and then to be destroyed. So the idea is that you would come in make the protein using the host cell machinery. And this is the body, the body is making the protein. The body is making the protein for you. And again, the lipid nanoparticle coated mRNA would come into the body, Mm -hmm. be released into the cytoplasm of a cell. Mm -hmm. The cell's replication machinery would basically translate that protein into a functional spike protein. Because that protein is foreign now, your body recognizes that something that doesn't belong. And anything in your body that doesn't belong, that's protein in nature more than likely, your body will develop an immune response to as a part, as a way of combating that. Because it sees everything that is different and not belonging as something it needs to mount a response to and to prevent from hurting the body. And so, the idea here is that you make antibodies to these spike proteins. These antibodies will basically bind to the virus that's coming in through a natural infection and prevent the virus from getting into cells. And if the virus can't get into cells, then it cannot replicate. And if it cannot replicate, the kind of pathology that it causes doesn't happen. And of course, even if you get a small amount of replication, it wouldn't be enough to create the kind of pathology that will require hospitalization. The lung disease. Exactly. And so once this virus gets into your system, it's going to get in through your T-zone, that is your eyes, your nose, and your mouth. The hands will facilitate transmission, meaning that you can touch a formite surface that might contain uh, droplet nuclei. You'll bring it to your eyes, nose, and your mouth, and you can be transmitted that way. This virus is highly transmissible, 
more transmissible than the common flu or the common cold. And the idea here is that once it gets into your system, it is headed for your lungs. In this case, it's going to your lungs and it's looking for one particular cell type, and that is the type 2 pneumocyte. This is a very important cell in your lungs and a part of your lungs called the alveoli. The alveoli are instrumental in resulting in oxygen exchange. That is, from the breath you take in and getting that oxygen to cells of the body. These alveoli are very important. If they become dysfunctional, your ability to breathe is now dysfunctional. And so once it infects that type 2 pneumocyte, it will basically kill those cells. Then you will have cell debris, and the body will basically send out an alarm that something is harming the alveoli. What happens then is that you have a situation where cytokines and immune effector cells will then now be taken up by the alveolar cells and the alveoli. And then what will happen is that they will try to basically modify the situation. But these pro-inflammatory cytokines will take over. The alveoli over time can become dysfunctional. And after a while, virus is not important anymore because the virus has come in and done enough damage to put you at a risk of dying. And so when a certain amount of damage is done, the person will develop or may develop a syndrome called ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. If that happens, then you're, you're, have, you're going to have a serious problem with this virus. You're going to probably need to be given ICU administration of uh, mechanical ventilation. And so mechanical ventilation, uh, again, puts you at a greater risk of dying depending on how long you're there. But it's the body way of saying you can't breathe on your own and you need something to help you breathe. Now, a mechanical ventilator will allow your lungs to uh, rest and recover. If that doesn't happen, then the likelihood of your survival surviving is 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 going to be poor. And so, it's trying to this virus is trying to give you a fatal pneumonia, pretty much. And at the same time, it can cause multiple organ system dysfunction. So you see people with dysfunctions of many different organs, and that can be problematic. And, and I want to say that even people that have asymptomatic disease that are in their 20s, they have done uh, CT scanning on some of these individuals, and they find even though you have asymptomatic responses to this virus, they see, still see evidence of lung scarring in those populations, suggesting that this virus leaves a trail even if it doesn't make you very sick. And again, can this lung scarring lead to pulmonary disease in the future? Right, right. It's, I think we, at this point, a lot of us have either known someone who has died from COVID complications or have known someone who has had COVID complications. So I think preventing COVID is a really important thing. And I think a lot of people are open to vaccines, but some people might be wondering, if I've had COVID, do I need a vaccine? And, and what's the difference between the vaccines that have been approved by the FDA for emergency use? Yeah. 
Yeah, so the idea is that if you've had COVID, they're saying that you should get the vaccine. And the reason behind that is this. If you've had COVID and it's been a long time, maybe your immune response is starting to wane a bit. And the idea is that getting the vaccine will actually potentiate your immune response. And again, we also know that there are some people that will not have a good immune response via natural infection. And so this would allow them to ensure themselves that they have protection by getting the vaccine. And so we've even seen a situation that's very important, the importance of getting a vaccine when we look at people that are long haulers. These are people that had lingering COVID-19 symptoms even after they test negative for the virus. It turns out about a third of them, once administered the vaccine, will get better. So what it suggests is that if you have a situation where you have maybe parts of the virus or, or virus itself hanging out in places that are undetectable by the test that's used, the vaccine might come in and provide you with just that extra ability to wipe out the remnants of that vaccine to make you better. If you do that, the symptoms go away and you get better. And so I just want to say a little bit about the differences between the vaccines. So you have Pfizer and Moderna. These are the mRNA vaccines. Efficacy of 95 and 94% efficacy. We have not seen this level of efficacy for a vaccine. We have to go back to the MMR vaccine to see that level of efficacy. And of course, at the same time, you're talking about 35 to 45,000 people have received these vaccines in the clinical trial. That includes the phase three clinical trial. And again, what they have seen is that they have seen some adverse events, but these adverse events are minor. And of course, you can report any adverse events you have to the VAER system that basically are monitoring adverse events from these vaccines. And of course, I, I just want to say that if there is a problem where there's a direct uh, injury to individuals because of a vaccine mix-up or a problem, these individuals will have the choice of litigation against vaccine companies. However, Part of Project War Speed was the government way of saying that we are going to reduce the level of litigation among these vaccine manufacturers because this is something we have to do very quickly. And the idea of having the burden of vaccine injury on these companies might make them say they don't want to participate in this. And so it is clear that if this injury is direct and done in a way that is uh, in of uh, mishandling of vaccines or given some type of other materials other than the vaccine, then individuals still have the right to litigate through the vaccine injury and compensation program that I have set in for a long time since I was a postdoc at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between the Johnson and the Moderna and Pfizer? So Moderna and Pfizer are the mRNA vaccine that are part of the lipid particle. And the idea is that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is represented by an adenovirus. Now, we all know adenoviruses as a common cold virus that we all have and transmit readily in the general population. Children and adults have this routinely throughout the year. This virus has not shown to cause any kind of uh, pathology that will be life-threatening in a person. 
And here, what the companies did, that is Johnson & Johnson did to make this very useful as a vaccine vehicle, is that they took out all the genes that are required for this adenovirus to be replication competent. So this is a replication incompetent adenovirus. And the idea is that it basically is a vehicle to deliver the spike like a protein in your body. In, with the Moderna and the Pfizer, you're basically injecting the nanoparticle that contain the mRNA molecule. With the Johnson & Johnson, you're injecting an adenovirus that can't, can't grow on its own, but it's there to only deliver the spike protein. So it's like the passenger and a taxi cab. That can't go further than just getting inside the cell, and that's all. But it's there to deliver the spike protein in a very efficient manner. Absolutely. So once the spike protein is delivered, your body will mount an immune response to it in, in the same way. Now, there have been some hiccups because the AstraZeneca vaccine is made the same way. It has yet to get emergency use authorization here in the United States. It uses a chimpanzee adenovirus vector to carry the glycoprotein. And the idea here, the spike protein, and the idea here is that those two vaccines have been associated with uh, cerebral emboli that can be life-threatening. And again, this happened in a number of women. The numbers are somewhat growing. And of course, they're trying to find out why. And of course, we have put guidelines on this vaccine in terms of who should receive it in terms of age and underlying conditions and so forth. These vaccines are very important because in terms of getting to the numbers we need and, and the global need for vaccines to COVID, these vaccines have to play a part in all of this. And so the idea is that they want to find out, is there some condition a person has that puts them at risk of developing this kind of adverse event? And maybe those individuals should be excluded from getting that particular adenovirus vaccine. I think, you know, when the news cycle had come out with the adverse associate with Johnson Johnson, that certainly did not help vaccine hesitancy. So I guess in addition to that, how would you pragmatically overcome that when patients come and they cite these particular examples and use that as leverage as, as to why they would not get the vaccine? How do you overcome? Yeah. So I think, I think when you're scared, it's hard to unscare you. And, and again, that's for anybody. And then to come back and say, these are the specific reasons why this is happening, and we're going to take care of that, that is not easy as well. Because it's still to this day, it is unclear why this is happening. And, and what they've tried to do, and I think it's very important, is full disclosure. And again, in communities of color, you need more than full disclosure. In communities of color, you need full disclosure by a person that's trusted, what we call trusted messengers, and it has to be delivered to them in a culturally competent, understandable way. And again, give them all the information that they need, try to soften what these adverse events are. And again, 
all they have to know is this is a problem and that's enough to scare people away. But what we have to say to them is that there are other vaccines out there. Johnson & Johnson has one very important component to this vaccine is that it's a one-dose vaccine. And so this is very important. But that condition they've seen in a very small number of individuals. And that's why this vaccine has to be uh, kept. And that's what happened. They allowed this vaccine to be reinstated. So that pause happened. That pause was released. And now Johnson & Johnson is still out there. Now, when you think about the kind of adverse events that lead to mortality with, say, the influenza vaccine, and there are some out there. And then you compare that to the few people that had these the, the cerebral thrombosis that you saw with AstraZeneca and Johnson. These numbers are very, very small. But again, all you have to do is put that in the news, and that becomes the order of the day in terms of causing increased hesitancy across the board, particularly in Black and brown communities. What has been done in the past? I know you mentioned having full disclosure along with having the messenger be a trusted pillar of the community. How do you identify who those messengers are? And has there been evidence that has shown that delivery in this manner does restore trust and improve vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, so we, we've seen this, and I'll give you some examples. What we thought in terms of trusted messengers, we thought in-house. Who do we have in-house here at Meharry? That's a trusted messenger that everybody knows. And that for us, that was Dr. James Hildred. And the idea is that Dr. James Hildred goes to church in this Black community. And they are going to sing hymns with him on Sunday morning. They didn't know who he is. He's on television. He's the president of Meharry Medical College. Many of the people in this community, their children were born in the hospital here at Nashville General. And the idea is that that's how you get trusted messengers, people that have interacted with the community over long periods of time, and they have garnered this trust. The other person that we went to is pastors. We figured faith-based communities were very important in being able to interact with the community on a regular basis. We're talking about a pastor that's in a church that have, you know, talk to generations in a family. So they have talked, ministered to generations of families over time. And pastors are very influential in the community. And the idea is that we wanted pastors like Reverend Edward Sanders on our team. And the idea is that he felt that he could speak to other pastors in a way that a scientist simply could not. And of course, he could speak to the community in ways that a scientist simply could not. And he could reach people that Dr. Hildred could not reach. So on a given Sunday, he represents a voice for this vaccine and, and a voice to help people that might be on the fence about this vaccine. And so the faith-based community, the people we had inside, and then we had to go to social media for the other parts as well. So I'll give you an example of what we did. For our Nova vaccine trials, we had very few Hispanics that were part of this trial, and we had to do something very quickly. If the enrollment for a vaccine trial is not complete, it might not happen. And so the idea is that we had to go out and we had to do something very quickly. I had two weeks to try and garner 
about 17 Hispanic volunteers that would participate in our trial to make it happen. And so what I did, I contacted a person that was giving a Facebook Live session for many, many years directly to the Latinx community. And along with her, she had an interpreter that could interpret medical information and so forth. And so I went on a Facebook Live session with them, and I started to take chat questions routinely by people on the line. And then I told them everything about the vaccine, what the vaccine could and couldn't do, because the misinformation that some of them had was something like we had never seen. They were concerned that the vaccine cost money. They were also concerned that if I'm in a, a multi-generational household with people that are undocumented, would I have access to this vaccine? Would I have access to testing? They simply did not know that. Some of them were fearful that if they had to come and give their information, somehow their information would get to immigration authorities and they would be followed around. The other misinformation that was told is that they were using uh, aborted fetuses to develop these vaccines in the laboratory. They were also told that there was some kind of a, a chip that the government would put in these vaccines that would allow them to be able to locate a person anywhere they went on the planet. It was just so many pieces of misinformation out there. And I had to basically knock them down one at a time on this chat session. And when we were done, the phones were off the hook. And that was direct evidence that if you engage people in a way to take away this misinformation and, and these conspiracy theories that some of them have, because the thing is that they're getting these ideas from trusted members in their community. And you have the task of overriding that barrier, and it might be not might be enough at times. And so, those are the things that that I had to deal with. And those are examples of how we were able to get around the barriers that are associated with hesitancy. We are out there speaking against these anti-vaxxers, and anti-vaxxers are people that basically have a voice. They are well financed. And they are out there promoting misinformation about the safety and effectiveness of vaccines on a broad scale. And they're saying that this vaccine is bad, it's going to cause this, and it's going to cause that. And they are targeting black and brown communities for this misinformation. And that was another part of a, a section in the paper that I discussed on anti-vaxxers. These people are real. Some of them are putting out this misinformation to basically make people buy into other kind of remedies that are unproven and, and that are not FDA approved and so forth uh, to take instead of these vaccines. I tend to discourage people from going after mega doses of fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D and so forth. I think if you're taking a regular multivitamin, you're eating a balanced meals, you should not have to go out and overdose yourself with different types of vitamins and herbal medications and so forth. Right, right. Yeah, those are really innovative mechanisms that you use. And I definitely agree the faith-based community is a powerful tool to reach many of our members. So I'm a high-risk obstetrician, and a lot of my patients will inquire about the safety of the COVID vaccine in pregnancy and 
the implications for, for their uh, babies since we focused on perinatal health. I wanted to see if you could speak to what data is known about vaccine safety in pregnancy and its implications in pregnancy. Yeah, so what we know is that a number of pregnant women have died of COVID-19. If you're pregnant, you're at higher risk for the more severe complications associated with COVID-19. The governmental bodies that are involved in health and wellness of women have basically given the green light to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, saying that with caution and after your physician, you should consider this vaccine because COVID-19 during pregnancy without this vaccine could be problematic. And again, this is a problem. And the reason being is this, that when you look at the vaccine manufacturers in their clinical trials, pregnant women and lactating women were not included. That data is going to be available very, very soon. However, this happened by chance. It turns out Moderna, there's about 36 women that became pregnant during the vaccine trial. And the idea is that 18 of them were part of the vaccine arm, meaning that you have a placebo arm and you have people that got the vaccine. So 18 of them actually got the vaccine. And so what they have seen, looking at these women, they have seen no unusual adverse events in them or their newborn children. And so again, there's going to be a, a small risk of transmission to a child. However, those numbers are minuscule in terms of those children that have been directly affected by COVID-19 at birth. These are very, very small numbers. And so what they're saying is that the CDC has certain guidelines for this. And so those bodies that are involved in women's health and wellness, like ACOG, have given the green light to these vaccines in terms of something you should consider as a pregnant female. Moderna looked at 1,000 mice that were pregnant after getting this vaccine. And what they saw in those 1,000 mice, they saw no evidence of a difference in fertility. They saw no evidence of dysfunctions in their litters or litter sizes and so forth. These are the kinds of things that they're saying that are in support of this vaccine being effective and safe for pregnant and lactating women. I want to turn our conversation to the global platform. And in other countries, in the United States, we have a history of racism and an era where that contributed to mistrust of the medical community by people of color. Does that same phenomenon exist in other countries that are predominantly people of color? Or is that something that's more so in the Western? Yeah, so when I was writing the paper on vaccine hesitancy and, and implications for herd immunity, the reviewer asked me exactly to ex expound on the question you just asked. And, and it turns out there is problems in, with vaccine hesitancy in other countries that are predominantly people of color. And so when we looked at Zimbabwe and a few other countries in Africa, what we saw is that people were very reluctant to get vaccines. And for reasons that you might not think, it turns out that in those communities in Africa, the fear of needles 
was surprisingly a, a factor in terms of getting them vaccines. And it turns out a lot of those communities have had issues with vaccines that go way back to the polio and smallpox vaccines in terms of putting something foreign into their bodies with a needle. The other thing is that there are religious groups there that are against vaccinations. And the idea, just like pastors we have here in the States, they have a tremendous amount of powers of influence. And the idea is that if you have religious individuals that are religious leaders that are out there and they're promoting that you know, you shouldn't get vaccines because they're going to cause this problem or, or, or the other, then that adds to the vaccine hesitancy that's there already. The idea of providing people with money would work very different in developing countries. People are less likely to allow them to do something for a small amount of cash. They have certain religious and tribal beliefs that wouldn't allow them to be accepting of these kinds of what they might call trinkets of some sort. This has been such a great conversation. What, in your opinion, are some trusted sources that our listeners can turn to regarding vaccine safety and uh, efficacy? What do you direct people to? So, so the first thing I would say, and, I, and here I'm talking to parents here, okay? Pediatricians. They are at the top of the list. Some of them have been there day one with your babies. You've trusted them with the most precious people in your life for a very, very long time. They have taken care of your children from birth to 18 years old. For the majority of their developing lives, a pediatrician has been there and has been a guide to the health and wellness of your family since the beginning. And so pediatricians have a level of trust that might only be different as opposed to parents when it comes to children and teachers. So they would, so pediatrician, teachers, parents, and then pastors and so forth. And then community-based organization leaders are also going to be a part of that trusted group. And so all I'm saying to parents is that when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, I tell parents this. I ask them if they have children that go to public school. All of them tell me, yes, we do. And I say, your children go to public school and they've been getting vaccinated since they were babies up until graduation. And I ask them, how many adverse events of all of those vaccines that your children or your friends' children have had have resulted in an adverse event that required hospitalization of any sort? And I get no words back. And the reason being is that vaccines have been safe and effective for decades. We live 30 years longer than we did 100 years ago, mainly in part to vaccines. Vaccines are one of the most highly scrutinized public health interventions that we have known since the beginning of time. Vaccines have been safe and they have adverse events. But these adverse events are minor when you think about it. And again, in order for vaccines to be effective, you have to have high level of vaccine uptake. And this is where we are. Can we get the level of vaccine uptake to the level of herd immunity where this virus is not able to transmit efficiently? But I, if we have pockets of people around the United States in every state that is saying that this vaccine is not for me, 
what that's going to happen, and this is the consequences of being hesitant here, and that is what you're going to get is a virus that never leaves because people infected are still around and so that didn't get the vaccine. And so what we need to do is infiltrate these small pockets of people that don't want to get these vaccines. When we look at these numbers are still, unfortunately, still too high. And when I say that, I'm talking about, first of all, the greatest bottleneck in herd immunity for me right now is white males of a Republican affiliation. And they represent a large majority of these individuals, the largest majority of individuals that are saying this vaccine is not for us. Then you're also talking another large portion, and that is children 11 and younger. There's no indication for emergency use for a vaccine for them yet. We hope that that will change by September. But the, again, this is a large number of people. And of course, college-age people, we see about 30% of them vaccinated. This is a concern. And you can see why the concern is. When you look at hospitalization, and the age demographics for hospitalizations, these are young people. And the idea is that this is that part of the population that are saying, this virus won't do anything serious to me. And what happens is that this virus, by way of an elimination, is gonna simply infect a large enough group to pull out those that will have severe effects due to the, due to the infection. And so, now you're seeing a switch over. Before, it was older people. This gives you an idea how effective this vaccine has been. So if we look at death among the elderly, considerably reduced because they were among the first to be vaccinated. As soon as you reduce the number of those fatalities with members of the population that had the highest level of comorbidities, what you saw is the death rate come down dramatically. And so what you're going to see is that this is going to continue to happen. The CDC guidelines will then follow those changes appropriately, I hope, going forward. And the idea is that we expect full school participation in September, in person. The one thing that I'm concerned about is the inequities of vaccines across the world. This has to change because if you're depending on COVAX, which is associated with the World Health Organization to deliver vaccine in the kind of volumes you need for developing countries, this is going to be problematic. They're suggesting that it could take three to five years to vaccinate the world, and this will become problematic. This virus can change enough to where maybe there is high-level selection of a mutation that is resistant to the current vaccines. Remember, the current vaccines that we have were all developed to the original Wuhan strain of virus that has a mutation since then. Of course, the companies are in a position because of the way these vaccines were developed is that they can make a different mRNA molecule very quickly to serve as a booster for individuals that might be affected by a variant that becomes so contagious and that you have start to have high-level breakthrough infections in people that have gotten the previous vaccine. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it definitely highlights the importance of why we need to get to herd immunity because 
the longer that it takes, the more opportunity that we have to have these variants, yeah. you know? So what can each individual do as a party of one and within our own sphere of influence, our family and friends mm-hmm. to promote uptake yeah. of, of, of vaccines? So, so I got this from a 92 year old that I was on a, uh, a webinar with and she told me she got the vaccine. And she told me she called up all of her friends and told them, what are you being afraid about? I got that vaccine. I'm older than you. And I feel great. And, and, and so what I think that I have seen is that it is the same thing that you sell anything. And it is the word by mouth effort. The idea is that when you are an example, you become a vaccine ambassador. And you get out there and you promote vaccines just through friendships that you have. And you take away these myths from them and tell them, look, I'm older than you. I'm sicker than you. And I got that vaccine and nothing happened to me. And look, I've seen this with young boys in high school and in middle school. So one of them would get the vaccine. And then they started to talk about it like, you know, I was tough enough to get that vaccine. The needle didn't cause me any problems. And you know what? I'm protected against COVID-19. Now, what about you? And so as soon as you say that, that youngster will come and bother you about getting an appointment for that vaccine. Among young boys, it will come a badge of courage to get this vaccine under the guise of being able to handle a needle better than the next guy. <laughs> and that's what I've seen. I've seen women that I talked to who said, we're not getting this vaccine in the beginning. And then one of, the, one of the good friends that is the leader of conversation within their group gets the vaccine. And the idea of getting that vaccine changes overnight. Because you know what she said? I'm going to visit my mother, who I haven't seen in the longest time. I can visit her now. And so communities are close. And they, and they survive on closeness. And this vaccine has done away with that. And the idea of being able to return to that is something that everybody wants. And the idea of getting a vaccine allows that to happen, then it's very clear what the risk will be. They're ready to get the vaccine. Right, right. Yeah, each one reach one. Yes. Can you just briefly talk about the the drive-through vaccine Meharry effort and how our listeners, if they wanted to utilize that, how to go about getting a COVID vaccine? Yes. So the idea is that we knew that access to vaccines were going to be very important in certain communities. Uh, These are communities that may not have access to CVS or Walgreens, over that matter, places like that where they could get vaccines. And we thought that Meharry would make another effort in combination with the effort to do COVID-19 testing, is to have mobile vaccines. That is, people can drive up after being able to uh, go out and register for this vaccine and it would be given to them very quickly. And of course, if they had friends that they wanted to bring along with them, they could bring along those friends in the cars with them and they would all be vaccinated. We didn't care if you were undocumented, we were going to get you a vaccine because we feel that if you fooled around and not vaccinate undocumented people, this would be a problem. You would have an unvaccinated population that is likely to transmit that infection to people they're at high risk already. If you don't mind, Dr. Alcindor, giving us some information like about how to register. Yeah. 
So you have to go to you have to go to uh, Meharry's vaccine website and register for the mobile vaccine initiative. And the idea is that you will be given a date and time to, to drive up because they have to have enough vaccine available. And again, because of this widespread interest, it may be difficult to, to get an appointment just because so many people have been interested and people have been driving from other parts of Tennessee to get this vaccine. You have definitely taught us so much. I really appreciate your time. Tip QC thanks you very much for your expertise. And we're hoping that this podcast would be just the beginning of a local effort throughout the state of Tennessee to protect our, our moms and our babies and our families from this devastating virus. So thank you. Thank you once again for your time and your expertise. And we'll link the articles that, that you share with me so our listeners can have access to them as well. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.